we left off last week with this slide. Solomon's latter-day counterpart, Stephen Hawking. First of all, what are the similarities between the two men? Brilliant. Brilliant. What else? Both. Well, what else? Searching. Searching. What else? Trying to find the meaning of life. Trying to answer all those difficult questions. What's the difference between the two? Coral? All right, he's trying to disprove God exists. And Solomon is a believer. So there are differences here. The interesting thing about these in the pursuit of wisdom is that both men discovered two things. Number one, they discovered that the truths about ultimate reality and existence are not obtainable by man, by his own wisdom. That's number one. Number two, neither one of them can escape the existence and knowledge of God. In this brief history of time, at the very beginning of it, Carl Sagan writes the uh, preface and he says, this is a book about God, or perhaps about the absence of God. Doesn't that sound like Carl Sagan? The word God fills these pages. Hawking embarks on a quest to answer Einstein's famous question about whether God had any choice in creating the universe. Hawking is attempting, as he explicitly states, to understand the mind of God. But he was also trying to prove he didn't exist. But here's what resulted from this search. Like Solomon, his search turns up truths that he has to wrestle with even further. The more he searches, the more he knows, the greater his grief, the greater his confusion, the greater the questions become. All right? He says this, Why did the universe start out with so nearly the critical rate of expansion that separates models that recollapse from those that go on expanding forever so that even now, 10,000 million years later, <laughs> it is still expanding at nearly the critical rate. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present state. How in the world does it find that balance? See, this is the question he couldn't answer. The more he searched, the more he found out that this whole universe exists on such a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of measurement of finding the exact correct equilibrium to continue to exist. And he can't explain how it got there. And then he says later, uh, there are rel relatively few ranges of values for the numbers that would allow the development of any form of intelligent life. Starts asking the question about why is there life? Why is there life on this planet? Why is there a life in this universe? Most sets of values would give rise to universes that although they might be very beautiful would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. One can take this either as evidence of a divine purpose in creation and the choice of the law of science or as support for the strong anthropic principle. 
He says here, the idea that space and time may form a closed surface without boundary also has profound implications for the role of God in the affairs of the universe. He says it still means that God would have to wind up the clockwork and choose how to start it off. So long as the universe had a beginning, we could suppose it had a creator. Isn't that interesting? What was the conclusion Solomon reached? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. You know, there are differences between the two men, but there are similarities. And it helps us to realize that this search is something that men have been pursuing for a long time, both unbeliever and believer alike. But the believer has a very distinct advantage. He has a distinct priority that differs from unbelievers. Remember if you read in that handout, the second handout I gave you that we went through last week. Uh, remember the illustration of the man whose Native American friend was visiting him in New York City? What did the Native American hear on the noisy streets of New York City? He heard the noise of a cricket, and his friend was absolutely astounded. No, you, you didn't hear a cricket. There's no, there's no way. You're, you're pulling my leg. You're joking. You're imagining things. And his Native American friend began cocking his head to the side and went around and finally found the cricket. And his friend was incredulous and said, I don't understand. How could you hear that? And the man reaches in his pocket, pulls out a handful of change, drops it, and everyone within sight turned to look. And he said, it all has to do with what's your priority. What we see, what we hear, what we observe has to do with our priority. If our priority is our faith, if our priority is God, if our priority is his word, then we hear and see those things. If our priority is not God, is not his word, is not a faith in Christ, then those things make no sense at all and they go by us without us even understanding them. So where is your priority this morning? To what do you and I give our attention? What are we ready to see and hear and understand? That's why we have Solomon writing this book under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit because he has a correct priority, although it has been obscured by his unbelieving-like lifestyle. He has begun to live like an unbeliever, and uh, it's obscured some of his knowledge that he has to relearn. The interesting thing in chapter uh, 1, verse 14, when it says here, all is vanity and striving after wind, literally that is shepherding the wind. You've seen the, perhaps the uh, uh, commercial that has to do with uh, uh, herding cats. Well, this is shepherding the wind. Try to shepherd the wind. Try to control the wind. Try to get the wind into a particular place. That is what the search for wisdom without God is like. He gives us a proverb in verse 15 of chapter 1. The crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, we can't change what God has ordained. We cannot change it. And remember, Solomon had all kinds of proverbs. In 1 Kings 4.32, we're told he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. 
There are not that many in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005, and we only have three of his songs. The Song of Solomon, the most extensive one. We have Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 72, and we have Psalm 127. We only have four of his 1,005 psalms. Do we need more wisdom to find the answers? Is that where we must turn in verses 16 and 17? Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and know madness and folly. I realize that this also is, again, trying to shepherd the wind. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Knowledge does not result in an advance in our relationship to God. It cannot bring about change. And so in verse 18, as he closes chapter 1, he gives us a second proverb. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. In other words, again, without God in one's perspective, only looking under the sun, not looking beyond the sun to God himself, Knowledge only results in increased sorrow and grief. It has the wrong perspective. More knowledge, deeper grief, deeper sadness, deeper confusion, greater questions. And what does it all do? It confirms that we are human. It confirms that we are sinful. It confirms that God yet holds us accountable and it confirms that we will inevitably die. That's what wisdom results in. That's all it can result in. The greatest of education can only result in that kind of firm knowledge when it's without God, when it is not looking beyond the sun, when it is limited to under the sun. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. Solomon cannot save himself. He cannot save himself from the frustrations of life. He cannot save himself from his humanity. He cannot save himself from his sin. He cannot save himself from the judgment of God. He cannot save himself from his inevitable death. That's what God was trying to teach Job too, wasn't it? When he said, well... If you think you know everything and you've got it all figured out, then let your own arm deliver you and save you. Solomon concludes chapter 1 with that. Now, what do you do when you've reached that kind of impasse and your education and knowledge and his great wisdom has not given the answer? What's the next thing you try? Anyone? Who said it? Pleasure. Thank you, Carol. Pleasure is the next thing. And so that's where we're going to go next. We're going to take a look at chapter 2, the handout for today. Because you see, even in our own time, don't we have the concept or the idea that education solves almost all the problems of humanity? That if our kids go ahead and they get a, a good degree from a good college, then that better education will lead to political stability, international peace, uh, cessation of teen pregnancies, lessening the people filling the hospital wards, 
decrease the economic depression. Isn't that our idea? I mean, that's what we're hearing, isn't it? The media is filled with it. If we get our educational systems in line and if we understand what knowledge is to be taught and we have the right people teaching, then uh, we can solve all the world's problems ourselves. Who needs God? Yes. Yes, Linda. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and as Marvin was telling me, that, uh, you know, he remembers in his past a man who had a PhD but didn't seem to have any common sense. And I can remember in uh, high school on the uh, track team, uh, the coach coming in one day and just railing and saying, man, alive. He says, you guys who are so educated, and he says, you get straight A's in class, but you don't have sense enough to come in out of the rain. And uh, he said the hardest person to uh, coach was the person who knew everything because they wouldn't listen to common sense, and they had no common sense. So he says, that guy, he says, I'm not interested in coaching. He says, uh, there's, there's no hope for him. You know, we've got this idea that education solves a lot. What happened then is that Solomon decided, well, if education, if erudition, if knowledge and wisdom don't resolve the questions I have, the difficulties, and don't deliver me from the quandaries I have, well, why not try pleasure? And for him, what did that mean? It meant play, it meant property, it meant parks, it meant possessions. In other words, we could say this, entertainment, edifices, and earnings, because education didn't work. All right? Look around you and think about how many people do you know that all they're after in this life is entertainment and edifices, homes, buildings, offices, and earnings. That's all they have in life. That's their pursuit. That's everything. It governs everything they do. Well, that's what Solomon is going to turn to. He's going to look at such things and, and see what he does. He already tried erudition and education. It didn't work. An interesting thing about this is ancient Near Eastern peoples expected their kings to accomplish a whole lot. It's, kind of, it's not any different today, is it? Didn't Obama come in with a program of change and everyone expect him to accomplish tons, right? And what has he accomplished? At this point, I think he's frustrated, Congress is frustrated, the people are frustrated, everyone's frustrated. That's right. This is the, this is the condition of man. This is what happens. We expect them. And, and I gave you two examples there for you to read on your own, on page one and page two. Actually, it's uh, page 13 and page 14 as you continue with the set here. Uh, but it's, uh, I gave you Mesha, a king of Moab. And on his monument, his inscription, uh, he claims to have built this and built that. You read through, and the word that occurs over and over again is, I built, I built, I built, I built. And then there's King Hammurabi, who lived 300 years before Moses. And in his 40 years, 43 years as king of Babylon, he marked every year by his accomplishments. In those days, you recorded the name of the year by something eventful. So his first year was known by what he built or did then. And he just put down what he established, what he constructed, what he restored, or whom he defeated to mark his, each of his 43 years. 
And you can read about that there on the top of page 14. Now, when you look at these two kings, Mesha and Hammurabi, one a Moabite, one a Babylonian, they speak as though they are fully satisfied with their lives, don't they? But are they? No. They really are not. Solomon, instead of expressing satisfaction, expresses dissatisfaction. Why is that? He's a believer, they're not. Why is he dissatisfied and why are they satisfied? Joe? He looked for something outside and now found it absolutely. All right, Coral? Okay, Solomon was honest, and Mesha and Hammurabi weren't. Solomon had a relationship with God and therefore knew that the world would not satisfy. These men were unbelievers, and they believed the world could satisfy. They had gods of their own making. Their, own making. their idolatry causes them no loss of sleep, but it causes Solomon a loss of sleep. Remember, Solomon had turned his heart after the idols, the gods of his many wives. 1 Kings chapter 11. Why does Solomon lose sleep and Mesha and Hammurabi can sleep peacefully? They never had the truth. They don't believe in God. What else? Yes. God convicts his heart. God's at work in him Right? He knows better. And because he knows better, it's there in his mind and he can't sleep at night. He's wrestling with the fact that his life, as he knows it, is contrary to the faith he knows that he has or claims to have. And it sets up a huge contradiction in him. You know, we might look at believers, or excuse me, unbelievers, we might look at those people in the world and say, man, they're so happy and satisfied. Why can't I be that way? Well, one reason is, is if we have sin in our lives, God doesn't want us to be satisfied and happy, right? There's something better, and we've got to get our, our, our lives in tune with that. One who knows the true and living God can never be satisfied merely with what this world offers. That's the point. We have within us, as believers, a God-given desire by the indwelling Christ who is in us and the indwelling Holy Spirit to desire the things of God more than the things of this world. We know, like Abraham, that we search for a city that's not of this world Amen. and that we're looking for the glories of heaven and we're looking to escape the ravages of time and everything else upon these bodies to have a glorified body. We have that. We have the knowledge of it. We have the desire for it that's given to us by God himself. And therefore, we cannot be satisfied. An unbeliever has nothing beyond the sun. And therefore, they can be perfectly satisfied with this existence. But we're not citizens of this world. We cannot be satisfied with it. What are the keys to a good night's sleep? Did you sleep well last night? <laughs> what are the keys? What are the keys to a good night's sleep? Clear conscience. 
faith and trust in God? Good work ethic. Good work ethic. Health. Health. What else? Anything else? Good pills. <laughs> That's Dick Carpenter over there. All right. <laughs> counting the blessings of the Lord. Counting sheep, counting blessings. You know, did you ever stop to think about why you and I some nights cannot sleep well? Did you ever stop to think why you and I will wake up in the middle of the night unable to go back to sleep? Or we wake up early and can't go back to sleep? This past week, there was one morning I woke up early. And I didn't want to wake up early. It was an opportunity to sleep in a little bit. And I woke up. And why did I wake up? Because I was thinking about things I needed to do. And things that needed done in ministry, in teaching, grading, everything else. And so I woke up. And, you know, when we do that, it's a good idea to spend some time in prayer, to spend some time in the Word, to settle our thoughts and settle our minds, and we can do that as believers. And I believe that God sometimes purposely wakes us up to cause us to think about things that are important. I think I mentioned last week, uh, I woke up at one point and, uh, the previous week, and God had flooded my mind with all of these thoughts about what is important and what is significant. We were studying chapter one, remember? And God had just saturated me with chapter one in such a way that I woke up thinking, you know, uh, you can get entombed by tomes. <laughs> Books, human knowledge, we can become overcome by the pursuit of publishing. We can be overcome by the pursuit of knowledge. We can be overcome by this constant drive to excel in, in areas of education. And I woke up with the thought, you know, all of these things, this is where a lot of my life is involved, is in education, that this is not the primary pursuit. That this is not that primary thing that God has for us. And that it's not what we accomplish, how many things we put our names on, or all the things we do like that, but it's rather what are we doing for God and what are we doing as far as priorities in our life. And I think I had a great two weeks because of that, because it also reminded me that there are relationships that are far more important than getting some papers graded or getting a book printed and published. So I had the opportunity to serve my wife a bit these past few weeks. She enjoyed it. I got up and made breakfast. Not just coffee for a change. And spent time with her. We became more consistent in our time of, of reading the Bible together jointly. These were rewards of that. But how'd that come about? It came about because God, through Ecclesiastes, began to work on my life to make me realize that if I'm going to teach this book and I'm going to read this book, and if I learn from it as I ought, then I ought to demonstrate better priorities. So, Joe, yes, we need to go fishing again. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8 has a problem in, of interpretation. How many of you have a version that says the last words are many concubines? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, those last words have to do with musical instruments? Okay. How many of you have a translation that has to do with treasures or treasure chests? No one has that one. Well, those are the three different ones. There's the traditional reading of this is musical instruments of all kinds. Uh, the Jewish uh, versions tend to go with chest or treasure chest. And then the other versions, like the New American Standard, go with many concubines. And the question here has to do with what does this word mean and all the commentators. I counted uh, last night. I have now 31 commentaries on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I try to survey each one as I go along and as I'm writing these lessons to find out what they say, to try to draw from the best, to try to learn, to use them as a catalyst to my own thinking as I study the word. And uh, they have all of them say, this is a hard problem to resolve and we really don't know. Now those that have gone with concubines are because the word that is used here that's doubled is related to the word breast or in the Akkadians related to the word mistress or lady. And when you compare it to Judges 5.30 where you have this phraseology, are they not finding, are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior to Sisera, spoil of dyed work, etc. Notice the phrase a maiden, two maidens. That is the same type of phrase we have in Ecclesiastes 2.8. Here, though, instead of breast, it's a womb. A womb, two wombs. A breast, two breasts. In other words, these are references then to women that he has uh, gathered in his harem. And so many concubines is probably the best translation of this. And notice what's just ahead of it. The pleasures of men introduces it. That helps then to demonstrate that that is probably the accurate interpretation. But even at that, it's hard to get at the exact meaning. It's very difficult. But keep this in mind. Verse 8 has to do with the idea of pleasure in wealth, pleasure in accomplishments, pleasure in music and entertainment, and pleasures in the sexual realm. This is what Solomon pursued, and it was nothing except the herding or shepherding of the wind. What we learn from this is Solomon denies himself absolutely nothing in his pursuit. He goes into it whole hog. And when he does that, he considers this. Have you ever thought this? I deserve it. I earned it. I've worked hard. Right? That is exactly the approach that he takes to that. Because as he's talking about this, notice he says, I did not withhold my heart, verse 10, from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Scott. Isn't that amazing? That's what it boils down to, isn't it? So why is Solomon sleepless? Why is he tossing to and fro? 
Why is he in pursuit of answers? Why is he confused? Is it because of the fact he's working too hard? He's got all those wives? Well, remember, pleasure is short-lived. It doesn't last forever. And true joy cannot originate within man himself. And as we look at this, we have to realize that uh, there is no way to answer these issues or these questions by pursuing that which does not last. And how... How do the things of the work of our hands survive? Well, it only takes one earthquake, right? One fire. Or as we found out in the church, one thief to break in. And it's gone. Remember, what, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Lay up for yourself treasures where? Where what doesn't occur? Moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. Where's our perspective? Remember in chapter 1, Where's our priority? In chapter 2, where is our pers per, uh, perspective? Do we feel that we're owed happiness because we've labored so hard? And what does that say about us if we have that approach? What does it say? Pardon? Pride. What's another way of saying it? Self-centered. Yes. Se selfish. Self-centered, proud, and arrogant. In other words, we're doing it ourselves. So who's God in that situation? We've made ourselves our gods, right? Or diminished him. Or diminished him, exactly. In fact, anytime we allow the sole place of God in the human heart, we have idolatry involved. We don't have to worship a little tiki god or something like that to be an idolater. All we have to do is replace God with something else, whether ourselves or anything else, and we become idolaters. Now, Solomon's assessment, as he turns on here in verses 12 and following, he has here, so I turn to consider. I turn to consider. This repeats the phrase he started verse 11 with. Thus I considered all of my activities. It means, literally, I faced the facts. I turn my full attention to, in these back-to-back -back phrases. He's completed his pursuit of wisdom and now pleasure, and he takes stock of the results. And it's not very satisfying. The second half of verse 12, for what will, will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done, is another problem verse. Some translate it this way. For what kind of person is it who will come after the king in the matter of what has already been done? In other words, is there another king that can behave as Solomon has, accomplish the thing that Solomon's, Solomon has done? Or another approach is to translate it, is a human likely to come along who will be better than the king, Adam, whom God made long ago? And like Adam, Solomon has found out that disobedience to God has its price. That disobedience to God means a loss of all that is pleasant and pleasurable because our priority wasn't on obeying him. The word excels. As you look at that in verse 13, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. 
as you look at that, it means there is more profit. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage is the same word? It's the same word. The word excels is the same word as advantage in chapter 1, verse 3. And look at chapter 2, verse 11, where there you have the idea of uh, no profit under the sun, the last words of verse 11 of chapter 2. It's the same word as excels. This is the same concept. And when we look at that, it's the idea here that uh, just as a torch makes walking in darkness much easier and safer, wisdom proves to be a benefit to the person who has it. It's a benefit, but it doesn't resolve all of the issues. Wisdom cannot overcome what? It cannot overcome death. Look at verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance the wise man is with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. What's the message? This skeleton? As it happens to the fool, so it happens to me. And here we can have a little bit of fun as we get ready to draw these, this study this morning to close. This is a tombstone. All right? Here lies Lester Moore, four shots from a 44, no less, no more. Or how about this one? Here lies Johnny East. Pardon me for not rising. Or here lies a man named Zeke, second fastest draw in Cripple Creek. Arabella Young, 1771. Here lies a silent clay, Miss Arabella Young, who on the 21st of May began to hold her tongue. <laughs> now we laugh at those, but what, what kind of epitaph might be written on your tomb or my tomb by someone with a lot of wit and keen observation of who we are and what we've done? Will they be like this? Or will there be something different? Something that has to do with our knowledge and pursuit of God and perhaps our interest in the things of Christ. You see, there is something better with which Solomon might occupy himself in this life than either wisdom or wealth or women or entertainment or all these things. And notice what happens at this point in verse 17. What has all this amounted to in the search? So I hated life. I hated life. For the work which has been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Again, shepherding the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, verse 18, for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who's going to follow him? His son, Rehoboam. And what's he like? Worthless. He's going to squander everything away in one year. Divide the kingdom. It's going to be terrible. Solomon, being wise, understands that and looks at it and knows he cannot prevent it. <laughs> See what happens if we focus on life under the sun? If we focus on life under the sun, we'll end up like Solomon. Even as a believer, we'll end up hating life because our priorities are wrong, 
our perspective is wrong. Think about it. We're going to come back next week, and we're going to continue on. We're going to finish this up, verses 18 through 26, and we'll move on to at least the first eight verses of chapter 3, a fantastic poem and a lot of things to talk about there. But as you leave today, if you look at the back of that handout you have today, there are a list of questions to ponder. How can you balance work and recreation to the glory of God? Think about that. That's a homework assignment. We're going to talk about that next week before we finish chapter 2. What does Scripture say about a person's work or employment? As we're praying for people who do not have jobs, let's have a right perspective, too, on what work is. Describe the wisdom that pleases God. What distinguishes the death of the wise from the death of the foolish? There is a difference. What is it? What characterizes a godly attitude toward possessions? What are the keys to a good night's sleep? We talked about it already today. What hinders a person from fully appreciating the good things in life under the sun? And lastly, list God's gifts that 224 to 26 reveal. Think about those questions and come back next week and we'll work on them. Lori. Right, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Yes, that's right. That would summarize today's lesson in essence. All right, are you listening for crickets today? Let's put that in the right perspective. Are you listening to God today? Listen for his voice in our pastor's message. Listen for his voice in the fellowship we have with fellow believers. Listen for his voice as he prods us to witness to unbelievers around us. Listen to his voice as he prods us to set the right priorities this week. That's about prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for this book and for what it speaks to us and how we learn from it and how we can look at it as in a mirror and see ourselves in what Solomon is seeking and doing. And Lord, help us to have the right perspective and to set the right priorities. Guide us and guard us as believers to serve you faithfully. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week.